Open your Bibles again, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 6. And while you're turning there, we will welcome our guests who are with us today. There is a visitor's card in the pew in front of you. We'd like to have a record of your visit with us, if you would care to fill that out. If you have not been following along with our study of Nehemiah, or you haven't been able to be here, you picked a good Sunday to come, because today we're going to see the victory accomplished, the vision realized, and that is the title of our lesson. After introduction, we'll look at an invitation to compromise from uh, the enemies of Nehemiah and the Jews, confrontation with slander, and a temptation to escape. There have been some challenging times on the way to this victory. In the book of Nehemiah, we see God doing a remarkable work. I believe God would like to do a remarkable work in our day, in this new year, here. That would be my prayer. We'll see some things about this work that God is doing. There are two very critical factors in any work God is doing. The amazing thing God was doing in Nehemiah's day was that after a century and a half, the walls of Jerusalem that had lain in ruins were being rebuilt reconstructed in less than two months. Incredible. And that is without the internal combustion engine, without hydraulics, without computers, and without steam power. Many of the things that we depend upon today. If God is in it, I'll tell you it can be done. Is there any rebuilding in your life that needs to be accomplished in this new year. If there is, then listen carefully. Two important factors in any great work that God is doing. There is the divine factor, and then we'll see the human factor. The divine factor, turn back to Nehemiah chapter 2, if you have your Bible open, and you can uh, follow along in those verses. Chapter 2 and verse 8, the good hand of my God was upon me. Verse 12, what my God was putting into my mind. Verse 18, the hand of my God had been favorable to me. Verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. If God is not in it, I can tell you that it's not going to fly, at least in terms of accomplishing anything that would be considered good in God's eyes. Then the human factor in Nehemiah, Uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, the king granted my request. And all through verse uh, chapter 2, verse 7, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces. Nehemiah had made requests of the king and God had blessed his requests and they were fulfilled. Verse 8, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber. Verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem. Verse 13, so I went out at night inspecting the walls which were broken down. And verse 20, we his servants will arise and build. Why do you think God chose to do things this way? He could have done it himself, by himself, right out of the sky. And he didn't need us. And he doesn't really need us today. His work is going to go on, but he has chosen to use us if we want to be used. 
I think one good reason is that we might have the joy of being a participant in the great work that God is doing. I didn't say it would be easy. I think another reason would be so that we can understand that the arm of flesh can accomplish nothing. If it's going to be God's work, we're going to have to depend on Him. And we're going to have to be working in accordance with what He is guiding. Now, do these two factors hold valid for us today? the divine factor and the human factor. And I would say, yes, they certainly do. In Philippians 2, familiar passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we're not talking about working for your salvation. This word work out means to work to full completion. And you can imagine if a father had a large plantation and his sons worked for him, uh, they weren't working for wages, he provided everything they needed and they would inherit the farm and one day he says, hey, I want you guys to go over on the South 40 and see what you can do with that section over there. So they go over there and they work, they cultivate, they do everything, they plant, they're looking for the greatest harvest that that field could possibly bring forth. Well, that's what we want to do. In this working out of our salvation, we want to bring forth a great harvest. So we're not doing it for merit with God. We are not doing it for uh, the fact of earning our salvation. We're doing it because we love God and we want to be fruitful in the work of his kingdom. Our job is to go to work. God is going to work in us to will and to accomplish his good pleasure. You remember faith without works is dead, we're told in James chapter 2, but we only work in the power of the Spirit. Now we see some examples of that in Paul's letters in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Do you have faith? Faith is work. Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of our God and Father. And then Hebrews 6, a familiar passage for some of us. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and your love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There's some good New Year's resolutions in these passages. And then Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought about from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Even our Lord Jesus Christ equipped you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We do the work, but we have the confidence that God has equipped us and that he is working through us. Now we're told in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 12, Nehemiah speaking, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting 
in my mind. Too many naysayers. Because a lot of people would have said, hey, that's impossible. You could never do that. What are you talking about? Rebuild the wall of Jerusalem? Well, he was waiting to see if God had really put that in his mind. Now, here's the question. When you get an idea of what you think God wants you to do, how do you know that it's God putting that in your mind? How do you know it's not the enemy putting that in your mind? Or just your desires that you want to accomplish whatever it is. Well, here are some familiar guidelines that we need to review, some steps to follow in finding out if God is putting something in your mind. And number one is peruse the Bible to find any principle or prohibition that might govern the thought in your mind. That means to pour over the Scripture, peruse the Scripture, really get into it. Search for insight. Don't hesitate, investigate. And the reason we put that one first instead of number two is that a lot of times we just shoot up a quick flare prayer and uh, then we just kind of maybe take a look at the Scripture, but we don't really dig in. We're trusting that God is going to just put it in our minds or speak to us or circumstances or whatever. But it's the scripture that God has ordained for our guidance through the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that God will lead you to the specific scripture through which he would desire to guide you. If people who ever did something in the name of God's will had checked in scripture first, they could have saved themselves a lot of heartache, number three. Put out on paper all the reasons why you think this idea might be coming from God. Because when you write things down on paper, that paper talks back to you. You can't carry but three or four thoughts in your mind at one time. I can't even carry that many. But when you get 20 reasons down on paper, and maybe the cons as well as the pros, that speaks to you. And you can see what uh, God is showing you, uh, even through the Scripture. Number four, present your reasons that you've written down on the paper to someone known for wise biblical counsel. Listen to what they say. Be sure you get the right person for that biblical counsel. And then number five, propose a plan to test the idea. If there is no plan, wait on the Lord. Now we had an excellent example of that in first light this morning. I trust that you uh, get up early on Sunday morning, make it to first light, because there's always something good that God has for us. Evan Took was talking about his work down in Mexico, and he was talking about the fact that when he first thought about going to Mexico, he decided to test the idea. He didn't put it in those terms. But he went down to visit with an alert friend in Mexico. And then he went back down to minister several times. So he has been to that place. He knows what's going on there. He liked what he did. And it looked like God was guiding and giving him success as he made preparation for that. That's what I'm talking about. If you think God wants you to marry a certain girl, check with your parents and see if you get a green light on that. Uh, Then if you do, 
uh, discreetly check with her dad and see if there's any interest there. Now, if you discreetly develop a romantic relationship instead of going through the channels, you'll probably fall in love with each other and then maybe get married. I'm not saying that you can't get married based solely on romance, but I'm saying it's probably going to be a rough ride. Many people in our culture uh, do that, just based on the emotions of whatever they're feeling at the time. There has to be much more to it than that. Test ideas by talking to some people that are probably going to have some good advice for you, and then listen to that advice. How did Nehemiah test the idea of building the wall of Jerusalem? He didn't have any counselors he could go to. He didn't feel like he did. But here's what he did. He mourned. He wept. He fasted. He prayed for days before the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. What do you think God is looking for among his people today? I would suggest that he's looking for some Nehemiahs, some who would be willing to come to him, get focused, and ask, God, what is your agenda for these people who are obviously in trouble? What do you want me to do as a part of that? Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Combine loyalty with courage, and you have the kind of man that God is looking for to do his work. God is not looking for a certain type of person for salvation. He calls people out of darkness. But we're talking about those who know the Lord and are committed to him. Uh, we need to follow the example of Nehemiah and be willing even to make the sacrifice to promote God's kingdom. Remember, he was working through the nation in that day. He's working through the church now. God is looking for persons, young or old, who are so filled with the Holy Spirit that they are willing to be used as a channel of his blessing to others. Being filled with the Spirit, not that you get more of the Spirit, but that the Spirit gets more of you, more of your affections, more of your desires, more of your attention. You get all the Holy Spirit there is when you commit your life to Christ. But then sometimes there are things in our lives that would grieve the Spirit and that would rob our effectiveness for the sake of Christ's kingdom. How would you know if there's something in your life that's grieving the Spirit, some area that needs rebuilding. Well, here's a good test. Your affections and desires will indicate whether or not this is happening in your life because Scripture says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart for the new year? Is it in the Lord's business? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Now, I didn't say they'd be added unto you on Sunday afternoon, but it, sometimes it takes some time because that's the way God works. The invitation to compromise. What do we already know about Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the enemies? 
We're introduced in chapter 2, verse 19, to Nehemiah's three main enemies. Sinbalat the Horonite was probably from Beth Horon in Samaria. It's known from other sources that a Sanballat was governor of Samaria, and that might have been our man here. We don't know for sure, but we do know that anybody from Samaria would probably not want to see anything good happening down in Judah because you remember the Samaritans had their place of worship up at Mount Gerizim, whereas the Judeans had their place of worship at Jerusalem, which was God's place of worship at the temple. Tobiah was an Ammonite with a Jewish name. He's called a servant in some of your translations because he was likely a court official in the Persian court. I'm guessing that he might have been hostile toward Nehemiah because he saw Nehemiah's work of rebuilding the wall as a continuation of Ezra's work. Now Ezra really came down hard on intermarriage with the pagan culture of which Tobiah would have been a member. Then there was Gisham in the Hebrew, Gashmu in verse 6, if that's the name given, uh, chapter 6 of your Bible. He was an Arab from Arabia Petraea, the Arabian desert. He was likely the chief of his tribe. So all three of these guys were brought into an unholy alliance because of their contempt for the Jews. None of them would have benefited in any way from Jerusalem having been strengthened by having the wall rebuilt. If you're a committed Christian today and you really want to make your life count for Christ's kingdom, I can assure you that you will run into some opposition just like Nehemiah did. It may come from enemies. It could come from the home team as well. The attacks come in a variety of ways that you may never have guessed, and we're going to look at some of them. A couple of guys named Jans and Jambres attacked Moses, we're told in 2 Timothy 3. You remember King Saul was uh, in opposition to David. And the Pharisees were in opposition to Christ. So if you want to be a true Christian and have your life count for the kingdom, there will be some opposition. We want to take a look at the enemy strategies this morning. See if you've ever seen anything like that. When the wall first began, Sanballat had a rather open strategy of mocking, derision, false accusations. In chapter 2, verse 19, they jeered and mocked and accused Nehemiah of rebelling against the king. In chapter 4, verse 1, Sanballat went into a rage and heckled the Jews in front of the Samaritan army. But then in our lesson for today, he changes his tactic, and we'll see what he's going to do. In every instance of the open verbal opposition, Nehemiah has a plan of his own, a strategy. What does he do? You notice in 4.4, he says, Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. He always made reference to God and appealed to him in prayer. Now we're going to see a different approach, trickery. Let's meet together near the town of Ono up north of Jerusalem. That's a good neutral site. Man, we need to talk things over. Hey, let's don't be so fanatical. Cool your jets. You've made your point. 
Take it easy. We need to work together on this deal. Change in strategy now. Modern translation. Well, it's okay to be a Christian, but you don't need to get too obsessive, compulsive about it. If that's your standard, that looks a little legalistic to me. Man, you need to loosen up and have some fun. The Bible never said you can't go to R-rated movies. Well, you see, in the name of the game, it's compromise. Nehemiah recognized that once he journeyed up to Ono, which was in the far northwestern part of Judah, as far as you could go without getting out of the country, then those guys were going to say he was traveling around the region, stirring up loyalty for his own cause and against King Artaxerxes, building a loyal following for himself. But Nehemiah refused to bite on the bait. He said, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. Why should I leave God's work to meet with you guys? That's verse 3, and we're in chapter 6. Well, the enemy is persistent. Look at verse 4. They employed the same strategy on four separate occasions. He's sending the invitation here. How is Satan trying to wear you down to compromise? And what will you do to prevent growing weary in well-doing? Here's a reminder from Alan Redpath, Victorious Christian Service. When a man takes a stand for separation and consecration, is pers- when a man who takes a stand for separation and consecration is persuaded by someone or something to compromise in one detail, from that moment Satan has got him in his grip. And that man has become useless as a channel for the blessing of God. A compromising Christian is in God's way instead of being a blessing to humanity. Well, we sure don't want to be in God's way. We want to be working with the Lord and hopefully providing a clear channel through which He can work. Well, if that didn't work, there's another possibility. Confrontation with slander. When all else fails, there's the tongue, the pen, or the internet. Now, we're not talking about somebody that has committed some crime and here the truth is coming forth. We're talking about that which is slander, which is untrue, uh, which is meant to destroy someone's uh, character or someone's reputation. It's the pen that Sanballat turned to now in an attempt to destroy Nehemiah. So what did Sanballat do when Nehemiah refused to compromise his conviction? This is in verses 5 through 7. He sat down and he wrote an open letter. And in this letter, he accused Nehemiah of sedition and treason against King Artaxerxes. And then he threatened to send the letter to the king. It's the same strategy that had been used previously against Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, and Ezra. If you don't stop doing what you're doing, we're going to tell the king that you're trying to take over the place and set up a new government and rebel. It probably was a valid uh, suggestion because uh, Judah had been known to rebel against foreign kings in the past. But it was not true this time. Nehemiah had been a faithful servant to the king. So Sembalat has a goal 
in slandering Nehemiah like this. And you can see that goal in verse 9. And it's a goal that the enemy has for you, whether or not it's slander or something else. And it's fear that will lead to disappointment. The one leads to the other. So he's hoping that Nehemiah is going to become fearful. And there it is in verse 9, he wants to frighten us so that our hands will drop from the work. That means they're going to be discouraged and they're going to quit. That's one of the enemy's most effective weapons is discouragement. And he'll use slander to bring you to fear and discouragement or he'll use whatever else, just bringing discouraging negative thoughts to your mind. And sometimes we feel, well, they've talked about me so badly, I'm afraid I can't find a good job now. Well, take a poor job until you can find a good job. But after they said, I'm afraid I'm not even going to be able to get married, don't take a bad husband. And I'm afraid I can't share the gospel. I just am, whatever that fear may be that the enemy wants to bring, it can cause us to get very discouraged. And when a person gets discouraged, then they just begin to give up. And Sanballat hoped that that's what would happen to Nehemiah. But that's not what happened. Not Nehemiah. Verses 8 and 9, if you're there in the Scripture, he denied the content of the letter, and he asked the Lord to strengthen his hands. He knew that he had faithfully served the king. Let me assure you that if you desire to live a holy life, if you're sold out for Christ you're going to catch some flack from the tongue. And it might be coming from inside the camp. Because if someone is really committed, if we could bring that person down a couple of notches, it might make everybody else feel a little better, at least about themselves. Last Sunday, Paul described Nehemiah as a type of Christ. If Christ faced opposition... What do you think we are going to face? The Bible is pretty clear about that. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Not all suffering is for the sake of Christ. But if it is, then there are some good things that you need to know if you are suffering for Christ's sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what can you expect? Christ faced ridicule and contempt. Luke 23, 35, the people stood by looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ, his chosen one. And he heard a lot of that sort of thing. First Peter, we're reminded, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened to you. He goes on to explain that we are like gold tried in the fire. So we want that to be pure gold, and the divine goldsmith knows just how high to turn up the temperature in the furnace. So trust him. Well, Christ was rejected by those he served. That's not a very good feeling. John 1, 10, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, 
and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, the Jewish people, and his own received him not. Christ had his motives and actions misjudged many times. Luke 11. He was casting out a demon and it was dumb and it came that when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Christ had his words twisted and misquoted. I'm sure that's never happened to you. But Christ said in John 6, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I give him, which I shall give for the life of the world, is my flesh. What do you think the response was to that? The Jews, therefore, began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then a few verses uh, forward from that, his disciples, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And that's where the New Testament Christians were accused of cannibalism from twisting those words of Christ. Well, Christ had his deeds scrutinized. Luke 6 and verse 7. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find accusation against him. But here's the last one. Christ refused to retaliate or defend himself. Not a very American response. And yet, 1 Peter, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. There is a pretty good response. Commit yourself to him who judges righteously. And to sum it all up, in John 15, Jesus said, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Then why be a Christian? If all this is what you have to look forward to, why be a Christian? Well, how about abundant life on this earth? How about eternal life in heaven? How about the forgiveness of sins? You can't get that in any other religion. How about the removal of guilt? And how about this? But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Have you ever been reviled? Are slandered. One day, Vaughn told me she heard that someone had said some bad things about me that were not true. I said, Well, that's no problem because I know some things worse than that about myself that are true. <laughs> so we just don't have to worry about that. I'm glad they don't know what I know. What's the best way to deal with slander? It's the biblical way. Now, this is important. You know what it's going to be. But here it is, and it's what we've got to make application of in this new year. First Peter chapter 3. Keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you're slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, verse 17, better mark this part in your Bible. For it is better, if it should be God's will, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Could it be God's will that we would suffer for doing what is right? Did Christ suffer for doing what is right? Did all the folks in the New Testament book of Acts suffer for doing what is right? They really suffered. And sometimes we don't suffer very much, and so we kind of lose that idea that there is some suffering involved in following Christ. How do you maintain a good conscience? Well, we're given two good ideas here. Titus 2.8, he's actually speaking to young men, but it's good for older men, it's good for everybody. He says, you men should be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. What is it that usually gets us in trouble? It's the tongue, isn't it? We don't usually go around beating people with baseball bats, things like that. It's usually the tongue that causes the trouble. And then uh, another passage, 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Sound speech and excellent behavior. That's the way to keep a clear conscience. And, of course, asking forgiveness when we realize that we have stumbled in those areas. Now, if you must use unsound speech or you have a habit of unsound speech, I would recommend that uh, once a week you go into your closet and close the door and just say all those questionable things that you feel like you need to say where nobody can hear them. But a better idea would be to get those questionable things out of your heart and then you wouldn't have to waste that time in, in the closet. Finally, the temptation to escape. One day, Nehemiah went to visit a shut-in. We're in chapter 6, verse 10. We don't have any shut-ins in this church, do we? Amazing. But when I was a little boy, we had a ministry to the shut-ins. Those were people who were confined at home. And so Nehemiah goes to visit this fellow, Shemaiah, who is confined at home. And Shemaiah has some connections, and he speaks with a rather authoritative voice, and here's the message that he told Nehemiah. He said, you better come down here and meet me at the temple, because these guys are trying to murder you, and they're going to do it at night, and it's probably going to be tonight. You need to meet me at the temple. Now, if this guy Shemaiah had access to the temple... He may have been a priest. He speaks with a kind of a prophetic flair. But Nehemiah is not buying that bait either. He realizes that this is a ruse, and he dismissed the offer. What did Shemaiah want to accomplish? Well, Nehemiah recognized it was probably Sanballat, Tobiah, who had hired him, and they wanted to make it out that Nehemiah was a coward. And also that he was a lawbreaker if he went past the temple courtyard, not being a Levite, into the temple proper itself. So Nehemiah was a guy who was very busy, 
but he was trusting in the Lord. And every time some new slander, some new accusation, uh, some new temptation came along, he was ready for it. It's the temptation to escape. Have you ever thought that you would just like to escape and go somewhere where people loved you and appreciated you and treated you right? I don't care where I go. I just want to get out of here. You ever had that thought? Where does that thought come from? Does that thought come from God? I'm not saying that there's not a time to go away and uh, maybe move somewhere else. But I would suggest to you, go back to those assurances. What do we have the Scripture and prayer and writing it down and counsel and testing ideas to see if that thought is from God. Right here at the very end, we're getting close to the victory, but the enemy is still hammering away. You know, you don't have to put up with all this slander. You don't have to put up with all these people hammering away on you. You can just go somewhere where people like you and life will be wonderful. Well, it's not exactly that way because anywhere you go, we find sons of Adam and even daughters of Eve. So I would encourage you to hang on for the victory. And here it comes. Chapter 6, verse 15, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elah in 52 days. But what about the enemies? Verse 16, And it came about when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Do you think now the enemies are going to throw in the towel and give it up? No way. The battle goes on. Victory may be accomplished, but as long as you're alive and breathing on this earth, the battle goes on. It gives you something to look forward to in heaven. The battle will be accomplished. But the battle goes on here. Now, the enemies of the Jews that were mentioned in our passage today have been able to infiltrate the ruling class of the Jews. I don't think I really realized this. I thought these were just some guys who were just uh, enemies. Though Tobiah was an Ammonite, both he and his son married into the families of Jewish nobility. No wonder he would have been against Nehemiah and Ezra who were saying that they couldn't marry anyone outside of Israel. In chapter 13, verse 4 and verse 7, if you want to look at it, we see that Tobiah was related to Eliashib who was the high priest, can you believe? And the high priest cleared out one of the Levitical storage rooms in the temple and put Tobiah in there as his apartment. Now, Nehemiah really got hot on that one. But these enemies had pretty good inroads into the Jewish ruling class. Look in chapter 13, verse 28. You see that one of the grandsons of Eliashib, the high priest, married the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. What's going on here? The nobles of Judah had an eye on the political map, and they were a powerful lobby in Jerusalem. And it's just the same as today. 
they were playing both sides in case Nehemiah's leadership failed, then they could easily go over to the other side who would then be in power. People willing to protect their own self-interest. People willing to play either end against the middle. The battle never ends until we depart this earth. How's your battle going as we begin this new year? Do you find that there are any ruins in your life that need to be rebuilt? If so, remember this. No one ever becomes interested in rebuilding walls unless they first get concerned about the ruins. And of course, if you're going to be concerned about the ruins, then uh, you might want to get in touch with the Lord like Nehemiah did. He was mourning. He was weeping. He was praying. He was fasting before the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. That God stands ready to show himself strong on behalf of anyone whose heart is loyal toward him. That's ourselves, hopefully, in this new year. We're asking God to show himself strong on our behalf as we serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Of course, if you don't know Christ, then you would be suffering from eternal ruin. And that's a pretty bad place in which to find yourself. And of course, Christ said many would come to him on that day thinking that they were on the team, but they were not really on the team. So we want to take inventory, repent, and turn to Christ for mercy and forgiveness. Repentance is not a meritorious work that you do to earn something. Repentance is a realization. I'm going in this direction, in this certain area, but I need to turn around and go in this direction. Repent. Get it turned around. Turn to Christ. Put your faith in Him and begin rebuilding today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed when we see the lives of men and women in Scripture who are just like ourselves. And they suffer the same kind of attacks from the enemy that we sustain. We ask that we would learn from their example, their examples, both good and bad. We pray that we would be great students of the Scripture in this coming new year. And we ask that through your word, your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom, give us insight, help us to learn to test ideas to see if they come from you. We pray then that you would give us courage to implement those things that you are calling upon us to do. Thank you for your grace that enables us to do anything good in this life. We thank you also for this memorial supper that you established, Lord Jesus, when you were here on this earth. And we ask now as we come to a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper that your Holy Spirit would examine our hearts, help us to see what is there as you see it, and help us, Lord, to remove those things that would not be pleasing to you. And we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.